so many ways to interpret I took a right turn. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be political, could be moral. There's many different right turns you could take. It could be driving down the street. And we've done that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, she almost (laughs) fell off her shoes. (laughs) Anyway, welcome Welcome to the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was crazy. My knee hit the stand. Oh. That's that's really not so crazy because now my knee hurts. Now we know what's going on. Okay. All right. Welcome. (laughs) We're we're getting ready to do um, what are we going to (laughs) do? Episode 10. Oh, okay. (laughs) Why are we here? Who am I? What day is it? Where am I? Uh Uh-oh. There's my book. (laughs) Something fell. And now we are here in the promised land. And in the promised land, we have finally hit triple digits. I know the rest of the country, some have been simmering and seething in the triple digits quite a bit this summer, but here in the promised land, this is the first time we've hit the triple digits, and we're not there yet. No, we are on the index, but not in actual temperatures. Right, in actual temperatures, <laughs> it's threatening that we're going to hit there two days this week, whether it happens or not, who knows, but we have uh, humidity here in the promised land that sometimes makes it, the, well, we get the 90-90s. Where it's 90 degrees and 90% humidity, it feels like triple digits. Yeah. But we're not there yet. Okay. But here we are to something else. We've come to our segment where we're going to talk about the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> so turn to, please turn with us to chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. And uh, what we're going to look at today is the in the 29th verse. Now this, of course, is in the midst of a conversation What does that mean? Cut it off. Stop. Yeah. Okay. We're, okay. Back. <laughs> we're back from the closet. We had to leave for a minute and, and figure out who we were and what we were doing. <laughs> Why is this microphone in my face? <laughs> what is that doing there? I don't know. We didn't know what we were doing. But anyhow, First Corinthians chapter 7. And verse 29, Paul is in the midst of a discussion about many different things in church life. And at this one point he says, I do want to point out, friends, that time is of the essence. There's no and time to waste. There's no time to waste. And when I read this, what, what it hit me, what I thought about is, is when you sign a contract. Now, most of us have signed contracts to buy a house or buy a car or any, you know. Any, if you marriage. Marriage, it doesn't say in a marriage contract. It doesn't say, you know, wives may say time is of the essence in a marriage contract, but the contract itself doesn't say that. Matter of fact, there really is no marriage contract. We didn't sign a contract. We signed a license. Ah. Ah. <laughs> All this time you thought you had a contract. She thought she was under contract. <laughs> You're a contract player here at this, the Owens marriage, you know, but no. <laughs> but anyhow, even when you sign up and you get a credit card, you may not notice it, you know, in those 17 pages of fine print that nobody reads before you hit the button that says accept. Mm-hmm. In there someplace it says, 
time is of the essence. And what that means is if the contract says the payment is due on the third, mm -hmm. that means the payment is due on the third. Mm -hmm. Maybe they'll give you a grace period and they'll say, oh, well, you get 10 extra days. What they're saying is the payment's due by the 13th. You better have it by the 13th or bada boom, bada bang. You're late, late penalties accrue, you know, and if you are late enough, problems occur. Yeah. So we all, you know, experience the idea of time being of the essence. Well, Paul is re relating this to living for Christ and living a Christ-like life. There's no time to waste. Mm -hmm. We can't, you know, walk around with one foot in, in, in the the Lord, you might say, on one foot in the world, that's just not going to work. You know, it's like the, like the guy who told us, we one time had a young man tell us, and we were in this church, and he was a drummer, he was a very good drummer, he was a drummer in the church band, and uh, we were talking to him about being saved and everything, he said, oh, well, I'm not saved, you know. He said, well, you're in the band here at church, he said, well, no, I'm not saved, he says, I want to have some fun first, you know, I'm going to wait a while, then I'll get saved. You know, it's kind of a scary thing, wasn't it? <laughs> it was to have this guy tell us this, and uh, we know other people who have have talked about it, and brought it up. We've heard about it other places. You can't do that. I mean, that's for one thing. That's called a sin of presumption, presuming that God is well. I'll just sin now, and God will forgive me later. That's the that itself is a sin. It's called presumption, and you know, there's no time to waste because we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. You know, we could be sitting here right now, which we are sitting here right now, <laughs> in the security, you know, of uh, our home. And an asteroid, a meteorite could come right through the roof, and that's the end of us, you know, or a hurricane or a tornado or, you know, whatever. A plane could fall out of the sky, or you could walk out the door and get hit by a bus, although there are no buses here. But <laughs> Well, the verse goes on to say, there's no time to waste, so don't complicate your lives unnecessarily. Amen. Keep it simple. Right, you know, think of how many things we do that complicate our life. Yeah. Oh, God. I mean, our whole life is made up of complication. It seems like you get up, and what is there, What is more important than doing what God calls you to do? Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You know, and think of all the things. And it's not just us. I know it's not just Robert and Rosalie sitting here with this situation. Everybody out there, think about what has God told you to do? And if you're sitting there saying, well, God, God never told me to do anything. Well, you better listen. Yeah, listen. See, that's the word of the day, of the week, of the month, of the year, maybe. Listen. Take time to listen. That's and, and that goes along with uh, you saying time is of the essence. Yes, it is. But it's also not hurry and rush. Hurry and do this. Hurry and do that. Hurry Amen. and do that. It's time is of the essence. But that doesn't mean it has to be fast. No, it doesn't mean you have to. It's like with a contract. When it says time is of the essence, that doesn't mean, well, oh, i got to pay the payment off, pay the whole thing off right now. No, it just means you have to do it, on, pay, make the payments on time. Okay. In a timely fashion. Okay. You don't have to hurry the payments. Okay. Time is of the essence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so don't waste any time. So what has God told you to do? What and what are what are you doing it? That's what I ask myself all the time. What has God told me to do? Am I doing it? You know, what am I doing that think of all the things I do that aren't what God told me to do, that get in the way of doing what God told me to do. Yeah, it's like picking tomatoes instead of doing this podcast. <laughs> right. God didn't God never told us to pick tomatoes. But we've got tomatoes. And there's they're out there crying on the vine saying, Time is of the essence. Yes. Because <laughs> right. if you don't pick the tomatoes at the right time, that's right. you lose the tomatoes. It's the right time. Right, Not exactly. Yeah, that's what I was trying to make the point of. It's the right time. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a very good point. 
You know, and, and once again, we're in the midst of harvest season, and so picking tomatoes is a big thing on our mind. But beyond just the picking of the tomatoes, we pick them and bring them in, and then we've got to process the tomato at the right time. So everything we do, we should try and do our life and live our life at the right time. And keep it simple. Yes, keep it simple. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed that segment. <laughs> and now we're going to read a chapter from uh, America's Trojan War, which is the first book in our five-book series about a civil war in modern America, all available at Amazon.com. All you got to do is go in, put in America's Trojan War, Dr. Robert Owens. Put all of that in your search line at Amazon. It's going to print pull up that book, and you can click on my name. It'll be in blue. Click on my name. It'll take you to my author's page. All of my books there. There's more than 30 books. Everyone is described, and you can buy them all right there. Kindle or softcover, one click right there. Hope you enjoy it. Here it is. Chapter 10, Where There's Smoke, There's Fire. Lisa Edwards, a nine-year veteran of the Washington Fire Department, rolled over in her bunk at the new Firehouse 27th on Southern Avenue Southeast. She was the first female member of Truck 27, and it had taken her two years to break through the good old boy network until now, with five years on the truck and a proven record as a solid firefighter, the other members of the team were comfortable with her. They knew she could hold up her end of the land. And if they needed help, she would have their backs. She was comfortable too, especially now that there were a few more women at the house. With 12 years as an Air Force Fire and Rescue Specialist who served time in Iraq and Afghanistan, Lisa thought she was prepared for anything. Her husband of four years had recently left with a woman who looked like a younger version of herself. She was living alone for the first time in her life, and she didn't really like it. There was no one to say goodnight to and no one to hear a good morning from. She recently began going to bars, at first just for the company of other people at night, and lately because she was into getting drunk, and she de discovered she liked the company of younger men. Today was her second day back on shift, and she felt like she was still wearing off a hangover. As she rolled over in the bed, not quite ready to get up and start the day, she was glad that at least her head wasn't pounding. It was only a dull ache. I had too much tequila. It always gives me a two-day condition, she thought as she snuggled deeper under the covers and fluffed her pillow for the third time. She stretched out and scratched her leg as she thought about Brad, the boy toy she had taken home the night before. He was only 24, and she rolled over again as she thought, that boy may have been dumb as a box of rocks, but he certainly had some go power. She was still smiling, thinking of Brad, when the house klaxon horn split the silence and interrupt, interrupted re reliving in her mind what a hearty young man he was. She had heard the klaxon more times than she could remember, but this morning, Instead of announcing where the fire was, it was followed by an announcement. All hands on deck! Report to the ready room immediately! Just like every other fireman for generations, she was up and dressed as quickly as humanly possible. And within a few moments, she was walking with the rest of the crew into the ready room. All right, everyone take a seat, barked Captain Rodriguez, the battalion chief of House 27. The scraping of chairs and the general muttering about a new situation was followed by the chief bellowing, Sit down and shut up! We don't have time for everyone to play 20 questions or 10 complaints. So listen up. Coming from the usually very 
polite and encouraging Rodriguez, this caught everyone's attention. Suddenly, you could hear a pin drop as everyone waited to see what this was all about. This is it. This is the day we've dreaded and the day we've been trading for. Terrorists have attacked the D.C. metro area. The quiet exploded into shouts and groans. What the hell? Where? How many casualties? Joined the curses and sighs as a stunned team vented their anger, fear, and anxiety. Hold it down, hold it down, soothed Rodriguez. We don't have time for all this damn bullshit. Quiet snapped over the room like a cap on a bottle, and into the expectant stillness the captain said, There are multiple attacks, and they're still going on. Then pausing because he couldn't believe he was about to say what he needed to be what needed to be said. The White House, the Capitol, and the Supreme Court have all been hit. My God, how bad is it? Is the president safe? Who are they? Kill the bastards were just some of the epitaphs and questions and exclamations that filled the air generously mixed with sobs, shouts, and stunned silence. There's no word on casualties at any of these sites, but it doesn't sound good, Rodriguez shouted over the din. The terrorists have also seized four major hospitals and attacked the police headquarters. There are firefights going on around all these sites as police try to assault the terrorists, but they are dug in and extremely well armed. What can we do? Let's go. Come on, let's let's roll. The shouts filled the room as the shocked first responders were eager to help. One of the hospitals the terrorists have seized is St. Elizabeth's, and there are multiple fires all around the area. And as I said, small arms fire from all sides. But that isn't all. From what I've been told, the terrorists have tanks and other armored vehicles dug in around the perimeter of the hospital. The fence line has been reinforced with cement barricades and other obstacles. And there are enemy snipers scattered through the neighborhoods in every direction. Will we have any police cover? Asked Lieutenant Williams, the commander of Truck 27. As I said, there are police and even some civilians firing from all directions assaulting the facilities. There won't be any direct police cover, not like we're used to in dangerous situations. Everything's just too chaotic, Rodriguez answered. Let's mount up. We'll survey the situation when we get there and do whatever we can. Stay safe and God be with us all. Moving from the ready room to the vehicles that comprised the full complement of Firehouse 27 showed how this dedicated group of professionals could operate as a well-oiled machine, a team that through training and experience was as good as it gets. In moments with the battalion chief in the lead, followed by truck 27, ladder truck 27A, and squad truck 27, and two ambulances, they were racing down southeast on Southern Avenue Southeast. Soon they were making the turn into onto Wheeler Road southeast with all sirens screaming and everyone tense as they hurtled headlong into their first active terrorist situation. They turned off Alabama Avenue southeast onto Dogwood Street and were almost opposite the Congress Heights metro station when a sniper's bullet slammed into the left temple of Captain Roberto Rodriguez. The 25-year veteran of the Washington, D.C. Fire Department, devoted husband and father of four, slumped over the wheel. His command car swerved into a line of parked cars blocking the road. All trucks came to a screeching halt. Lieutenant Williams jumped out of the squad truck and started towards the chief's car. He hadn't taken more than four steps when a bullet ripped through his face. He crumpled like a marionette whose strings 
had been cut as the back of his head exploded in a spray of blood and brain. In quick succession, bullets found the gas tank of the command car, causing it to explode into a fireball that engulfed the nearest parked cars and created a complete blockade as tight as the Boulder Dam on the Colorado. The firemen were all jumping out of their trucks and pulling off what they needed to fight the fire. While some were hooking up the hoses to the trucks, others were pulling out the hoses and rushing towards the flames. As the gas tanks started to explode, crashes and shock waves that knocked down anyone in their path. While the men and women of Firehouse 27 were trying to get to their chief's car to clear a path to the unfolding emergency, the sniper continued to rain death into their ranks. Bullet after bullet found its mark, and one after another dropped into pools of blood as the fires raged and the explosions shattered windows and eardrums. Lisa was in the rear compartment of Truck 27, on the opposite side from the shooter. She was running towards the front to grab onto a hose being pulled out when just as she broke into the clear, the man in front of her, Eddie Bailey, one of the most die-hard good old boys she had had to deal with when she first arrived, and one of her best friends now, kneeled over and keeled down to the right side of his face disintegrated in blood and gore. Lisa's momentum caused her to trip over his body, which was the only thing that saved her from the next bullet, which instead went across the street and hit a 12-year-old girl who was looking out her window trying to see what was going on. As Lisa was trying to get up, Jamie Matheson, her best friend at the house and mother of her godchild, fell on top of her. Lisa grabbed Jamie and dragged her back behind the truck. Jamie, Jamie, look at me, look at me, Lisa shouted as Jamie, uh, Jamie's eyes flickered for a brief second with life before glazing over in the blank stare of death Lisa had seen so many times during her deployment. For what seemed like an eternity, but was really only seconds, Lisa held the lifeless body of her friend as tears slid down her cheeks. Then another firefighter, Bill Jeffords, a crusty old veteran of 35 years whose retirement party was scheduled for next Friday, staggered back from the front of the truck and collapsed on top of the grieving Lisa. As death and destruction flew in small lead projectiles, and as cars burned and people died, something snapped in Lisa. During her deployment, she had carried a weapon, as all the firemen in common areas do. She had even been in a couple of firefights, and though she couldn't be sure, since they didn't do body counts as they did in Vietnam, she was sure she had killed and wounded more people than she ever wanted to think about. She had been trained and she had experience, but that day none of it figured into her thought, because she wasn't thinking, she was reacting. She was reacting to the situation, reacting to her fear, and most of all, reacting to the death of her best friend as she shouted, Let's get this son of a bitch! She pushed him off her, gently laid Jamie on the ground and climbed to her feet. She could hear bullets smashing into the other side of the truck. The black oil and rubber smoke from the burning vehicle stunk to high heaven and made her eyes water as she grabbed up a fire axe from the hands of a fallen friend and headed for the back of the truck. Followed by two others, Jimmy Dorsey and Sharon Wells, the three firefighters could see that the shooter was in the metro station. They crouched behind cars. Lisa led the way, down the block, until she thought she might be out of his immediate line of sight as he continued to rain bullets down on the stalled column of emergency vehicles. Staying low but running fast, they crossed the side yard of the station and crouched behind the brick wall next to a side door. Once she caught her breath, 
Lisa eased up and peered through the window into the waiting room. There wasn't just one, there were two men in American military fatigues with AR-15s firing through a window on the other side. Lisa slid back down and said, I'll take the one on the right, you two take the one on the left. She was the only one with anything that might be called a weapon. The other two just had their hands, which were itching to get around the throat of the man who was killing their friends and co-workers. Without saying another word, Lisa, slowly and as quietly as possible, opened the door. As they entered, they tried to move quietly and quickly, and though they were quick, they weren't all that quiet. The sound of the rifle fire massed their advance until they were almost on top of the two terrorists. Then the one on the left looked over his shoulder, shouting something in Arabic. Both men started to turn, but before they could bring their weapons to bear, the firefighters were on top of them. Lisa smashed the axe down on the exposed neck of the shooter on the right. He immediately fell with a groan as blood spurted from severed arteries. On her left, her two companions jumped the other man. With all the adrenaline pumping force he could muster, Jimmy grabbed the gun with one hand while he punched the man in the face. Sharon hit him low and took his legs out from under him. All three fell in a squirming and shouting heat. The terrorist, a veteran of many battles, a dedicated ISIS warrior committed to giving his life for the true faith and the father of three children who had all been killed by Assad's barrel bombs, shouted, Allah Akbar, as he let go of his gun, pulled the knife, and plunged it into Jimmy's exposed stomach. Jimmy let out a loud wail and let go of the man, who was now free to turn his attention to Sharon. He grabbed her by the hair and was about to slit her throat when a shot rang out and he slumped over dead. Lisa stood over him, rifle in hand, and kicked the knife his lifeless hand had dropped away from the body as Sharon crawled out from underneath. Looking out the window, that was just moments before the portal of death and destruction. Lisa, Lisa could see other firefighters rushing towards the station now that the firing had stopped. She saw others finally able to get water and fire extinguishers on the scene of the fires and she knew soon they would have the situation under control. She also saw people in the neighborhood coming out of their homes now that the shooting had stopped. The first through the door was Lieutenant Gary Edmondson, the commander of Squad 27, followed by several others from his elite team. Good work, Lisa, and you too, Sharon. See to Jimmy, Gary said to his team as he surveyed the room. Lisa also looked around for the first time and noticed that the place was strewn with the bodies of early commuters who thought they were safe in a quiet residential neighborhood on the right side of the tracks in the capital of the greatest power the world had ever known. As if hearing or hearing had been turned off, with her ears still ringing from the concussions of the exploding cars, all of a sudden she was aware of the almost constant sound of small arms fire up ahead in the direction of the hospital. She kicked the fallen gun towards the lieutenant and said, Better pick that up. I don't think we've seen the last of these murdering assholes yet. Two of his men were carrying Jimmy out the door as Gary picked up the weapon. He was a retired mar Marine who knew how to handle a gun and knew how to kill the enemy. Lisa, you and I will provide cover for the company. Stay here. I'll go to the other side of the street so we can cover more than one approach. Yes, sir, Lisa snapped as she reverted to her former military self and took a place crouching behind the wall, peering out the same window which just a short time before had threatened the firefighters, but was now their sentinel, their cover, as they hurriedly worked to put out the fires and clear a path to the hospital. Thank you, Robert, for reading that excerpt from the book.
Uh, don't forget, you can get it at Amazon. We are now going to go into a homegrown, that's what we call it, a homegrown song, one that Robert has written, called Nashville Gospel. Enjoy. Piano? Yeah. Yeah, we want the piano as a piano. <laughs> okay, we're ready? We're good. If I know my fate 